Hi, and welcome to today's meeting of Book Hoarders Anonymous. Let's all begin by introducing ourselves. Hi, I'm Shannon, and I'm a book hoarder. Hi, Hi Shannon. Hi, I'm Aaron, and I'm a book hoarder. Hi, Hi Aaron. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Book Hoarders Anonymous, episode 37. Hello, I'm Shannon. And I'm Erin, and I tend to sing randomly, so <laughs> just be patient with that. Uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever. Uh, it's already 2015, and soon we will be three years old Wow. I can't believe it. That'll be next month. It's going to be, I just can't believe it. Um, anyway, I uh, hope everyone has had a good month. We have been very busy with our various lives, but we have a short book this month to compensate you all for the somewhat long, but hopefully exciting read you had last month yes. of Bitter Greens by Kate Forsyth. Um. We'll talk about that a little bit later and also give you our next month's homework, holiday homework. But um, I thought we'd start off by what we read, as we always do. So how about, Shannon, you want to start and tell us what sure. you read? Other what than did I read this month? Um, I read, actually, I was pretty proud of myself. I read, um, I, I completed a series, as, at least as much as there is to complete. Yay. I read the first two books in... Patrick Rothfuss's King Killer Chronicles. Ooh, and those are long books too. Oh my god. But so the conceit is if you haven't read them that that this guy like is a hero of legend and he's basically moldering away at this inn and like he's found out by this guy who's like a scribe and and he calls himself the chronicler and and the chronicler convinces him to tell his story and he says okay but i need three days to do it in and so um the first book in audio is like 26 hours long which okay the second book however is 42 so woo how how he is so like already my suspension of disbelief is a little a little shaky like how is he doing that in one like, day he's not having this conversation like he's talking really fast mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um but it was, it, you know, so it's all about this it, this heroic fantasy type of thing. And it was, I thought it was going to be a lot more grim than it turned out to be, which was mm -hmm. good. But it did, like, I, I enjoyed it. I, li I, I liked the first book a lot. The second book, however, was, like, about 20 hours long. Too, too long? Long. Oof. I don't oh, know. I'm um, so ready to be done reading that book. <laughs> a couple of the Game of Thrones ones are about that long. And after about 20 hours, you start going, okay, it's, it's, I'm done. Can we skip ahead? Yeah. If you, you're, it's one of those things. It's like if you're, you skip ahead, you're afraid you're going to miss stuff. So, yeah, I get it. Woo. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but mm -hmm. it was still very, very much like, oh, Patrick Rothfuss. Like, <laughs> you're a little self-indulgent now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so that was that was interesting um let's see I also read 
Um, God, I feel like I've been reading the Name of the Wind books for so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was like 60. No, 26 plus 44, did you say? Yeah. That, 70 yeah, so hours. Like 60, 70 hours. So that was a lot of your time. <laughs> it was a lot of my time. Almost four days. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, of course, I had to, like, <laughs> eat and sleep and go on vacation and things like that. Yeah, so yeah. So that, yeah. <laughs> that didn't help. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I read... Let's see. I think I I don't think I talked about reading the narcissist next door last last podcast. Oh I, no, you did not. I did not. Um, so I did read that in between times, and that was a nonfiction book about well narcissists, and it was written by a journalist who um re- who like studied like narcissism, and it was very like like breezy and sort of like scientific but not in a like a way that was hard to follow and it was really pretty engaging and and they I read it on Bard and they got the they got like the author himself to read it and he mm-hmm. did a pretty good job. Oh. Um so I'd recommend that. Mm-hmm. This month I had the experience of of not finishing a book a, a book by Stephen King which has never happened to me before. Which book? But I tried to read Four Past Midnight and couldn't do it. <laughs> There are two stories in that book that I really like. The second the second story was my favorite, and I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was about a guy who um, was schizophrenic and totally freaked out and went crazy and thought that his other self, but he thought he was a real person and that he was coming after him, and it was, it was cool. The third story was really good, too, and I can't remember what it was called. But those were the two that were my favorite. I did get through all of the stories, but only because it was Bob Askey reading it. Um, I hated the Langoliers, and it wasn't because of his portrayal of the blind girl either. I just thought the story was weird and boring. Um, And the last story was kind of clever, but it was kind of also boring. And if you hadn't read Needful Things, you wouldn't have really understood it. Yeah, yeah. And I got, I didn't like the Lingoliers at all. And I, I, the, the story about the schizophrenic guy was, um, I, I don't know. It didn't, didn't really. It was a little overlong. I will say that one was kind of fun, I thought, but it was a little overlong. A little overlong. Okay. Well, I'll talk about the books that I read yeah, and then maybe the book that you read that you really wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about. Apparently, will come I don't to want you. to talk about it enough that I Okay. So, I reread and this was something that was a reread. It it but I want to mention it because at the time that I read it, it was I thought it was fascinating. It was called um The Red Wyvern by Catherine Kerr. K-E-R-R. Now, we have a drugstore here that we call Carr, and it's spelled the same way. So I want to pronounce her last name Carr, but I don't think that's the way she pronounces it. Um, And this book, when I read it, it was one of those like random things that the library sent me. It is smack in the middle of a series of books. So I was reading it at the time going, huh, huh, what? Um, Through parts of it. Um, But when I read it, it was like this fascinating coming-of-age story about a girl who was... um, had it was it's also based on Celtic mythology, and so it was it was this fascinating story about her discovery that she 
had control of some kind of magical powers and how she grew to use them. And she had to make a decision whether she wanted to use them for her evil mother or her good foster mother, uh, you know, in, in that service. And she ended up changing, you know, allegiances and, and all these other things. And the thing that made the book fascinating was that it was interwoven with the stories of two other people in various times. So in a past life, she was someone else, but she was bound up with the same sort of souls that she was bound up with in her present life, who were also other people, and her future life, who were also other people. And, you know, she didn't really remember anything about her other lives, and the other people didn't remember anything about their other lives, but they were bound together in the same sorts of struggles that they experienced um, in the main story, which was like the middle life, I guess you would say. And so there were like two subplots that you would occasionally revisit. And I thought it was kind of cool at the time that I read the book. And also, again, when I reread it, even though Kristen Allison narrated the current version, and I was kind of like, meh, because that's how she <laughs> affects me. Right. Um, but I may go back and reread the series, um, you know, like from the beginning. Um, yeah, there and, are like a bunch of books in that series. Yeah, and, and I haven't read it. I just read this one. I actually did start the first book in the series, which was called Dagger Spell. And it's narrated by Fred Major, who I think is a little more tolerable than Kristen Allison. Right. Um, and so, okay. But Kristen Allison also narrates some of the books. So I'm going to have to deal with her. So I'm not sure if I'm going to continue with the series or not. But I probably will. Um, because I think like the whole past and future life thing is, is so fascinating. Um and that happens in those books to some extent, I think, too. So um, I read that. And then I read this nonfiction book. And Rodney had to hear me moan about how it was so boring, but yet so interesting. And I couldn't decide which one it was. Was it boring overall or interesting overall? It was called The Social Conquest of Earth. It's such a sinister title. Um, and it has more to the title, but that I can't remember. Uh, by E.O. Wilson. I had to, re I, well, I didn't have to read it, but I chose to read it for my church's book club. Uh, and all these people are so much more intellectual than I am that I'm not sure if I'm going to continue with the book club or not. But, you know, I, I may. Um, we read it over a two-month period, and I slogged through most of it in like a weekend because I wanted to get it done. And it was about humanity's conquest of Earth and how the human species is one of the most successful and why. And it was told from the point of view of a biologist. And so a lot of it is really scientific, especially like third and fourth parts of the book where they're talking about genes and alleles and traits and how they all interact with each other. And I got so bored. I was like, oh, snore. Um, <laughs> but if, if you go into, if you continue with it, and the book has seven parts. Um, it's written primarily for the lay person. The third and fourth parts get a little technical. Um, but the, the first two parts and the seventh part are interesting. The seventh part in particular talks about how humanity has these traits and why they evolved. Like, why did we evolve music? Or why did we evolve religion? Um, why did we evolve art and creativity? And it's, you know, basically the premise of the book is, is it nature or nurture or both? You know, that's what scientists have been debating for years and years. And the book determines that it's probably a mixture of both that have shaped us, um, our genetics plus our environment and 
shaped human beings and culture. Um, and also that we are shaped by various forces of natural individual selection and group selection is what he called it. It was really fascinating. Like our reliance on each other and our reliance on the group and our reliance on ourselves have, have shaped us. Um, I thought that the talk about all that was fairly fascinating, but the talk about the genetics and things was like, eh, oh God, I'm so bored. Uh, but I did. I'm glad that I read it. I don't know that I'm going to read any books, other books by this author, because it's just kind of like, whatever. Um, he's saying a lot of the same things in his other books from what I've, I've read and, and heard from other people. And I'm not as that interested that I want to go and read his, and watch his YouTube videos where he talks with Richard Dawkins and, and they have, you know, out and out fights over which theories are best. Oh God. So no, um, but apparently Richard Dawkins and him get into long debates about is it is it group selection that has shaped us or individual selection or kinship theory and I'm just like I don't care um but it was good and I'm glad that I read it it was a you know a, a nice non-fiction read I'm trying to read more non-fiction as I think I've said before um okay another non-fiction book that I read oh my god two non-fictions in a month holy crap okay anyway um practicing a former musician's return to music so I read this book and it was primarily for my own enjoyment. It was one of those that I stumbled upon on on Bard searching for books about about music. So um basically this guy Glenn Kurtz talks about his journey. He's a classical guitarist and he talks about the first part of his life when he thought he wanted to be an artist and well not an artist like a painter but but a musician and he wanted to just wow the world with his musical gifts. Uh, and then he realized that he he wasn't he didn't have it what it took um, to make a career out of classical guitar, which I never realized how few of those there were and how hard it was to um, you know make yourself known in that in that particular field. But as he writes about himself and his life, he talks about why practicing is you know was important for him as a musician how he got out of the music field for a while and how he had to get back into it. And he actually had to learn how to play again because he had lost the the technique in his hands and he hadn't used the muscles and, and finger coordination mm-hmm. that was required of him. Um, and as I am uh, deciding to get back into music again myself, not as a profession, but, but as a method of, you know, pleasure, I have noticed that I can't play the piano anymore. Um, I used to play all the time. Um, I took lessons for a long time. And I can't, I don't have the, the coordination in my hands anymore. And I've lost the piano playing um, finger pads that I used to have. Um, and so a lot of the book resonated with me. Uh, the parts that did not were the parts that the Victor reader did not understand. He he had musical notations at the beginning of each chapter, except for the last oh. one. And the Victor reader was like, <laughs> because obviously it can't read Braille music. It can't make sense right. out of that. So I don't know exactly what the notations were. Um, and they may have been meant if you knew how to play music to represent something. And since I don't have it in Braille, I can't piece them out. Right. Um, but, but they were, you know, like various melody lines and chords, I think. And, 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 um, 
I wish that I could have gotten that, you know, like understood what that was, but I didn't have a Braille copy to do that. Um, and my Braille edge is in the shop, so I couldn't <laughs> read it through that either. Um, but anyway, so I, I really did enjoy it. Enjoy it. it was it was very um, evocative. He talked about, you know, his emotions and and how he had to relearn a lot of what he had learned before and how he appreciated music differently now that he was grown up and, and getting back into the feel of it again uh, and into the methods of, that he used for practicing. I never practiced like three and four hours at a time like he, he does apparently, but you know, um, he got, it, it was, I thought it was really, it was really good. And it was also really short. It was about 200 pages, regular print pages. So, um, not not overly long at all. Um, and the last book I want to mention is, uh, I thought it was really kind of weird, and I would have appreciated it more, I think, had I read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. But um, that being said, the it was called A Scientific Romance by Ronald Wright. A recent addition to Bard, read by Graham Malcolm, who, in my opinion, not quite as big a crush on him as Simon Vance, but getting close. He can read almost anything. Um, and this book was about The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Apparently, it was real. Well, according to the guy in the book. Right. <laughs> and he found it. And he decided, after some preliminary um, back and forth, to go forward in time 500 years and see what Earth was like. In, in an effort to find someone who may have gone forward 500 years, but he wasn't sure. Uh, so he went on this wild goose chase, and he was British, so it's all about what England is like in 500 years. And I found this book interesting and sad in a lot of different ways, primarily because I have read books that are written by modern science fiction writers. And I happen to agree with a lot of uh, people like John Joseph Adams and um, Gardner Desois, who edit science fiction for a living, that the science fiction that's being written now is in some ways a really sort of disappointing. Um, as we get more and more, you know, we make more and more scientific inquiry into life on other planets and how that possibility is remote and improbable, according to our science anyway. And as Earth continues to sort of depreciate because of what we're doing to the planet, the science fiction gets a lot more pessimistic, um, concentrates a lot more on what Earth's future will be like, and is really kind of sad. And this book was no exception. Um, Earth in 500 years, at least England, is has totally succumbed to global warming. And so it's like a tropical jungle with parrots and peacocks and macaws and um, banyan trees and mangoes and all kinds of stuff in it that England now does not have. And so in addition, there are like hardly, well, there are no people for most of the book. And he's traveling through England looking for other people. Well, the UK, I guess, because he gets into Scotland. He's not finding any other people. He does find all these weird animals like emu and, like I said, tropical birds. And I think he found like a weird animal that was sort of like an elephant, but not quite. And this very intelligent cat who follows him around for a while. Um, and apparently she was born with only one ear. So there's like this weird genetic mutation going on. Um, Earth is significantly hotter. Um, and I found this sort of like apocalyptic view of earth pretty sad uh but it was also really haunting because he's a, an anthropologist and he 
or an archaeologist, rather, this guy in this book. And he's going along uh, looking for people and piecing together the past that had happened in the 500 years he was in the time machine, and also thinking a lot about his past. Uh, I won't give any spoilers away, but I, I, the book was sort of sad and depressing and haunting at the same time, and I really enjoyed it. It reminded me a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Lost Continent, um, which was, you know, sort of like pulpy fiction written in the early 1900s that was about this guy who um, nothing had been heard from Europe for like hundreds and hundreds of years. He was American. He went, they got stranded in, in England, actually, and it was like back in the middle, back even before the Middle Ages, England. I mean, like they had disintegrated and society had sort of decomposed and all the British people were just like barbaric and, you know, barbarians, like before Rome even came. Um, not because they had gone back in time, but because society had disintegrated. Um, and this book reminded me of that, but with tropical vegetation and mutant cats. Uh, so it was, it was really interesting. And I recommend it if you like this kind of like time travel type thing. Um, and, and, and haunting and, and really well written. But the one thing I did not like about it was the author, or I mean, the guy in the book spent too much time reliving his past memories. Uh, and, and I was like, okay, move along. We, we know you didn't like school. Let, let's, let's just move along to stuff that's <laughs> right. like happening in your real present life, even if it is going, you know, down the river in a boat looking for people. So uh, in a nutshell, that's what I read. Um, did you think of the book yet? I did, actually. <laughs> there you go. But I thought about it just as, as you were beginning beginning your, your talk, because I read a really fun collection of essays by Joe Walton mm -hmm. um, called What Makes This Book So Great? And Joe Walton <laughs> is a science fiction writer, and she wrote a column for Tor.com for a number of years where she reread a ton of books and and basically talked about the experience of rereading them. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read like I haven't read as widely as she has in in science fiction and fantasy. I, I would like to, but um, like she, it was just like some really like good combination of like you know analysis of the books and mm -hmm. then like her own personal reactions while she's reading them. Oh, fun! And it was really fascinating, and and I enjoyed it. And there are like now seventy five more books on my TBR than there were. That's before. awesome. I'm gonna um, read this one too. Yeah, what makes this book so great? Because mm -hmm. oftentimes, like I wonder that. I'm not real good at setting down my personal reaction, but I'll have a reaction to most things that I read, and it's like either wow, that's awesome, or ew, I don't want to read that again. And so when I'm trying to think of why a book was so good and people ask me, I'm like, I don't know. I just like the book. Um, maybe it will give a little bit of perspective on why some things are so great because I do know that I have reread things and people are like, why are you wasting time reading this book? And I'm like, because it was great. I don't know why it was great, but it was. So yeah, I, I, I understand. I'm, I'm glad that, that that's out there. I'll look for it. Um, meanwhile, we have news, not much news. It was a slow news month this month, but we do have the, we will put it up there, a suggested list of books to buy for gifts in the holiday for 2015, apparently what people consider to be the best reads of 2015. And also, um, 
the surprising novel that President Obama chose as his favorite book, which happened to be a book that I had never heard of. I had not either, and I was going to Google it, and I didn't have a chance to yet. Yeah, this I morning. didn't either. Fates and Furies. Fates and Furies. Yeah, that's Fates right. and Furies by Lauren Groff. Um, I had never heard of it. Apparently, he loved it or likes it a lot. At some I have point, I wonder like maybe how I'll much time you get to read as the president of the United States. I know how much you know. Like as the president, you're constantly busy. When do you even have time to read? And like, does he watch TV? You know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe as he's traveling to his various golf games, he's like reading. When he's walking between holes in the golf course, he's possibly. reading. Possibly, yeah. I mean, when else would you have time? Um, a survey says that books are getting longer, and I i mean, there's not a whole lot to say about this article other than I think I agree with it, because I'm noticing that the books that I'm reading that are being written, uh, that are coming out relatively recently, are longer and wordier. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's just a science fiction and fantasy trend. I've noticed this in, in a lot of different genres that I read. Uh, yeah. For instance, the the social conquest of Earth, which was written a few years ago that I talked about earlier, is nonfiction, and it is like written in 2011 or 12. And the author could have said the same things that he said in 450 pages. He probably could have said in 200 pages. Um, and I, you know, I've just noticed that. I, you sound like you're making agreeing noises. So. Yes. My <laughs> my colleague at work has said has a theory that it's because of the invention of the word processor that now that we don't have like um you know now that we can we can mm-hmm. sub- put uh, like epic amounts of of like words on a computer screen and not have to type things up or write them out longhand that it has made people wordier and I, th- I think there's something to that I was thinking about like um like the books I haven't read that mm-hmm. just just gonna say that <laughs> but like um Oh, that new Donna Tart book. Uh, what's it called? Ooh, um, Donna Tart. The Goldfinch. Yes, the Goldfinch. Goldfinch which is like thirty-eight hours long, mm-hmm. and then like there's a book that that's been recommended to me a lot called A Little Life by Hanya. Oh yeah, Yakahara. I don't remember. Yakahara, Yakagovita, or something. Something I'll Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's that I I believe the version on Bard is again something like forty two hours and I'm just like why a little life little a little life a little <laughs> life it's apparently not that little I haven't yeah. I haven't read it because I I understand that it is also very depressing yeah I heard that too so I don't know um but the they were talking about it on one of the Book Riot podcasts and mm-hmm. like okay well now it's on my radar yeah I know <laughs> um and. The last news story is that uh, there is a species of what is now a sperm whale. Um, It was apparently put on a shelf in the Smithsonian, and they thought it was a walrus. But somebody, with a little too much time on their hands, in my opinion, took it down, put it together, and realized that it was an unknown species of sperm whale. And it has been named, a long and complex name that I will not try and pronounce here, in homage to... Moby Dick. And I thought to myself, well, the name doesn't have Moby or Dick in it. So why is this homage to Moby Dick? Apparently, the name means Great White Whale, which was what they called Moby Dick in the book. Again, apparently, because I haven't read Moby Dick, so I don't really know. But the species was named in homage to 
Herman Melville and that. <coughs> All right. So, yeah, apparently, all sorts of apparently's, but uh, apparently it was named in homage to Moby Dick that they called the great white, white shark, I think, in the book. Um, but it was really a whale. But anyway, so yeah, all you book nerds out there, you will I, apparently appreciate that if you've read it. I, I have not, but we there stuck it in I. there anyway. <laughs> um, so the homework last month, Bitter Greens by Kate Forsyth, unless you have any other news items. Nope. <laughs> Okie dokie. Uh, slow news month, like we said. Uh, it was. No news items, no listener mail. Real slow. Uh, the Bitter Greens, I started reading it about just very soon before our last podcast, actually, and I just finished it about a week ago. Um, I found it not too long, because I know you had a concern about that. I didn't find it too long, but it was very intense. It was um, very intense. It was... Um, it, it is a retelling of Rapunzel set in historic um, Renaissance Venice, and also there are sections set in the court of Louis the Fourteenth. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, to it, it tells the like intertwining stories of the woman who wrote the who wrote the version of Rapunzel that we're most familiar with, and also the. Uh, the story of Rapunzel herself and it's it's got it's mostly historical there's a thread of magic that weaves in through there but I didn't find it terribly um I mean like it felt appropriate for the times it wasn't like epic fantasy kind of magic mm-hmm. um like where you know it could be or it could not <laughs> right. certainly there were some magical elements but it wasn't I wouldn't have called it a fantasy necessarily Mm-mm. um I liked it I thought the writing was beautiful. Um, I thought that Aaron Jones, who reads it for Bard, did an excellent job. But, like, I wish that I had not tried to read it. I, I think that you had the right idea where you were, you started it and started read it, it in read smaller other doses. Yeah, I did. Did you read it all at once? I did. Woo! I basically was like, oh, crap, I haven't started this book in the podcast <laughs> this weekend. So Whoops. I started it on Wednesday. Whoa. <laughs> um. And it was like, it, I was definitely engaged while I was reading it, but there were so many hard parts. Mm-hmm. Like every time I was expecting a little, a little bit of like levity, there would be like, oh yeah. And then she got like mauled to death by a bear. <laughs> like, yeah. Literally, that doesn't actually happen. But you know, it would just be like, oh my God, there's one more thing. And then we're going to switch to this other character and they're going to have horrible things happen to them. Mm. Mm-hmm. I... And, and the reason that I started reading it in small doses was not because of its intensity, but because I kept reading it before I went to bed and oh. I kept falling asleep. And so I was like, okay, where did I fall asleep? So now I have to start again. So then I just decided I am going to read it in small doses because that's the way things keep working out. And every couple of, cause the, the vignettes that, you know, one was about Venice and then let's say the next one was about, um, the court of Louis the Fourteenth, because it was kind of spaced out, like every other one was about the other, uh, the other thread of the story, and so I'd read two vignettes and then I would stop, and so it took me, it took me almost three weeks to finish it, um, because I did it that way. But I think because I did it that way, I didn't find it as hard to read. Um, because the terrible things were spaced out, like I would read one terrible thing per day, um, right. 
that being said, it is very um, difficult, very emotional. And I thought that the author did a fantastic job of not only describing the landscape, both of Venice and, you know, France, but also describing the emotions of the two main characters and their reactions to everything that that happened to them. And I thought she did a very job, very good job of making them human and real. There was, you know, the author of Rapunzel who had her own struggles. And then there was Rapunzel, um, who had another name, but, um, you know, the Rapunzel in the in the story that we all know of who, who had, you know, basically was was um, put in a tower by this this witch for various and sundry purposes. And the witch herself is woven into the tale too. Telling you about it, if you haven't read it, will seriously spoil it. But I was very, very uh, touched by the way in which the author dealt with the themes of redemption and um, forgiveness in the yes. in the book. Um, yes. Now, in the fairy tale, what we tend to remember about Rapunzel is that she has, you know. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. I think that's the thing that made me remember it the most. Um, you know, the hair. And she's in the tower and the prince climbs up her hair to carry her away, basically. And um, so I don't think that's a spoiler because that's in there. You know, it, it, and uh, we all know it. And the thing that I remember about the fairy tale is that there are, you know, the ver- there are a couple of versions. The one in which, you know, bad, nasty witch, she's never redeemed. And then... Another version in which she is redeemed, and I think, you know, this author focuses on the the latter portion. Um, And, you know, we don't know whether she's, she becomes, you know, a magically good and wonderful person in the fairy tale. But in this book, we see her, you know, sort of metamorphose and try to um, atone for all of the things that she had done in her previous life. And so the author describes, you know, not only um, in redemption is there forgiveness, but the person doesn't become magically better um, or better or good. You know, they spend some time atoning for the things that they've done that they're not proud of. And so you can make that choice. uh, And the witch in this novel did that. And so I found it, you know, I figured it out, like who, who... I figured it out pretty early on, but it was still a, a great read. And I think mm-hmm. I wanted to stay with it just to figure, just to be sure I was right, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it was a great read. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. It was just hard in, yeah. in places. And I thought that it was what, what I really liked was that it was a very feminist book, but it wasn't um, like, I don't know. I read earlier this year, I tried to read some, a book called um, Jane, the woman who loved Tarzan um, which was a feminist retelling of the Tarzan stories, and I hated it. And I hated it because, like Jane in the in that book was was had like twenty twenty first century feminist ideals, and what? it was that wouldn't set have in like nineteen hundred whatever. And and so it didn't work for me at all. It was like, okay, how is this woman like how like how is this woman surviving <laughs> like? Yeah. Does she does not fit? So, but this one, I thought, like, um, you know, all the women in the book do the things that they have to do to, like, try to to get what 
like as close as they can to their their dreams and mm-hmm. um like it's it's a pretty terrible place for women to be yeah. in, in, in and i thought Europe. that i mean you know they did it and you know they they tried to fit the conventions as much as possible yes. and when they yes. couldn't fit the conventions the conventions sometimes um snapped back on them which probably would have happened back then so i think that she did a good job of making the women out to be to live in the centuries that they were living in you know like you didn't drop yeah. a, a woman who had 21st century ideals like you, like you would say or or magically sort of modern ideals into the 17th century that's just not it's not um not good writing to do that it's not being truthful and authentic to the character um and like they all do that they all like all the women in this book have their their struggles and mm -hmm. i didn't i thought that she did it very well like without you know just like i didn't think she was too preachy about it right um but they all like charlotte rose the the woman who wrote rapunzel like you know basically she she wants to pursue her writing Mm -hmm. and she wants the freedom to do that but nobody's ever married her and like her attempt to to try to get somebody to marry her doesn't (laughs) like goes disastrously Mm -hmm. disastrously badly um but then also she you know I, I I liked how that ended for her, where where she's she she resigns herself to to like staying in in the nunnery, but she you know still gets to kind of have that like her writing, um, you know she has to lie to do it, but <laughs> right, but she does, but she she, she gets, gets it. it, and um, you know that and and. Like the Rapunzel character, Margarita is kind of the same way. Like she, she wants to be, you know, like she's in a literal prison and she wants to escape. And and um, at, at first, I was thinking, like, oh my god, like every single man in this book is just a horny, sex obsessed, like <laughs> vaguely terrible person. And so I was really glad that there actually was a kernel of, of genuine romance in the Rapunzel story. Mm-hmm. And even in Charlotte Rose's story, I mean, you know, Charles wasn't all bad. No, <laughs> no, he wasn't. I, you know, he 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 was also stuck in a pretty terrible situation. Yeah. Although I did think that, like. I read the authors afterward and she was like, yeah, somebody that like literally disguises herself as a dancing bear <laughs> in order to try to rescue him. Mm-hmm. Like how awesome is that? <laughs> that is pretty cool. So, um, yeah. And and from what she said, that actually happened. Yes. And yes, so, you like, know, like it wasn't just her making it up. That actually did happen um, because as we, we know, Charlotte Rose was a real person and, um, you know, and and it was fascinating, of course, how the author wove those instances of reality into uh, the book. The in- instances of you know actual historical happening, you know, in right. in there. And of course, like the you know the witch is becomes the the mistress of Tiziano, who you mm-hmm. know it was a real painter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very good book. Uh, a little long for some of you. So the next book that we have picked actually I picked it um because I was very like I am not into Christmas this year as some of you who follow me on Twitter will no doubt know because my (laughs) username has screen name has changed 
Um, and so I picked a book called Skipping Christmas, and it's by an author that I really don't like many of his books, but I'll deal with it. As Skipping Christmas by John Grisham. It is a short three and a half hour read about a guy who doesn't want to have a Christmas holiday and, you know, all the havoc that that reaps, reaps in his family. Um, and that's all I know about it because I haven't read it. So I haven't read it either. Hopefully, I'm going to read it, it on the plane, going to visit my family on yay. Christmas Day. It I sounds like that, it's going to be fun. Be a perfect thing, thing I, to read on the plane. I think it would too. I think it would too. Um, it sounds like it's going to be funny. So I hope that none of us are disappointed. And a, and a light read. So I hope none of us again are disappointed. Uh, and we will get back together with you at sometime after the new year to talk about it. Of course. All right. Uh, well, I, think I think that's about it. About it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if you would like to contact us, you can do so in any number of ways. You can send us um, an email at bhapodcast at gmail.com. We love listener mail. Yay! Um, <laughs> it, you can go to our website at bhapodcast.com, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Book Hoarders. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, you can email me, uh, you can email book orders, or you can follow me on Twitter at Aaron Edgar. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with Shannon, you can follow her on Twitter at Bardsong, or email book orders, bhapodcast at gmail.com, or... If you want to, well, are you doing the blog thing still? <laughs> really uh, still not. Yeah, I haven't seen any entries. Uh, her blog is flightintofantasy.com if you want to encourage her by leaving her a comment. <laughs> yes. um, we are both on Goodreads and Book Hoarders Anonymous is on Goodreads but is woefully out of date. I do apologize about that. I will probably do my holiday updating um, of our reads at some point soon when I get a chance during the holidays. And if you want to check out the melting pot on the Phoenix, you can do that. It's the-phoenix.net uh, for the website to find out about it. And I think that's it for contact info. I think so. So we will see everybody next time on Book Orders. Meanwhile, happy holidays, all that jazz. Uh, stay happy, healthy, and safe. And enjoy their reading as always all right take care bye bye, -bye. to contact the book hoarders send email to bhapodcast at gmail.com follow book hoarders on twitter call us at 520-81-BOOKS 520-812-6657 and visit the website at bhapodcast.com